welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd get slapped with a diagnosis of dextroversion if I saw that you missed this week's show. Make friends. Dr. Marissa G. Franco helps you start and grow friendships so you can enjoy rich, valuable, fun friendships now and throughout your life. She's a psychologist, professor, and author of the book Platonic, a New York Times bestseller. On Tony's Take Two, Planned Giving Accelerator. We're sponsored by Turn Two Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn two.co. And by Fourth Dimension Technologies, IT Infra in a Box, the affordable tech solution for nonprofits. Tony.ma slash 4D, just like 3D, but they go one dimension deeper. It's a genuine pleasure to welcome my guest, an enlightening psychologist, international speaker, and New York Times bestselling author. Dr. Marissa G. Franco is known for digesting and communicating science in ways that resonate deeply enough with people to change their lives. She's a professor at the University of Maryland and authored the New York Times bestseller, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. She writes about friendship for psychology today and has been a featured connection expert for major publications like the New York Times, The Telegraph, and Vice. She speaks on belonging at corporations, government agencies, nonprofits, and universities. Today, she belongs on nonprofit radio. <laughs> She's on Instagram at drmarissagfranco and at drmarissagfranco.com. Welcome, Marissa. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. I love your energy. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you. You get me excited to, mm -hmm. to uh, talk about friendship. And you're coming off, uh, you just told me before we got started, you're coming off a TED Talk. Yes, TED Talk. That is wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Look forward to seeing it. Friendship, Marissa, unfortunately, declining in the United States. What's happening? Wow, that's a great question. You know, it's it's been declining since like the 1950s, unfortunately. And um, there's this really good book, Bowling Alone. And he analyzes all the factors that kind of started this decline in what he calls civic engagement, like engagement in our communities. He says it started with the, the television, basically, that before then, leisure was something you did publicly. You did it with other people, right? But with the creation of the television, you spent leisure at home. And not only that, watching TV triggers lethargy. So even if you want to get out and call someone, you're like mm -hmm. less likely to do it, right? And then I think as we've continued, technology, like 2012, loneliness really began to spike. What happened in 2012 was the rise of the smartphone. And it's not that we can't use technology to connect with people. We absolutely can. It's just that the way that technology is now developed, it's developed in a way to keep us kind of scrolling on our phones, not engaging with other people, right, in ways that continue to foster loneliness. So I think there was also analysis that found that like 
in 35 out of 37 countries, kids in school were significantly more lonely than they were a decade ago. Mm. All right. So these uh, these technologies, TV was uh, TV was wonderful. Um, I, I think the belief was that it was going to kill movie theaters, which obviously didn't happen. Uh, Netflix was supposed to do that, too, and, and it didn't. Um, Blockbuster before Netflix was supposed to. But so the technologies, um, you know, in some respect, especially the phone and, and social, the social networks. uh the, the, a lot of the promise was that it would bring us together. Mm-hmm. And I know you're saying it can, but we need to be intentional, yep. I guess, about our technology use. Exactly. That is what I'm saying. Okay. And we'll get a chance to talk. We'll talk more about, uh, we have the whole hour together. So we don't, mm-hmm. we don't have to pack it all into, into the first five minutes. Um, well, let, let's uh, a little motivation for folks that might not recognize what what the the value is of having rich, fun friendships? Yeah, so we absolutely don't recognize the value. Um, In fact, there was a study that found that when people predicted how they'd feel talking to a stranger, they, um, they thought they'd feel a lot more, a lot better just like being on their own and not talking to anyone. That was their prediction. But the study actually found that people, after they had talked to a stranger, increased their amount of positive feelings and joy. And more so, they felt better than those who were just kind of sitting alone. And so we underestimate just how much connection will bring to our lives. But the researcher, the research finds that, for example, loneliness is akin to smoking 15 cigarettes a day and its impact on our bodies. Oh that my gosh. Really? Yep. Yep. It's that bad. Um, 15, not even 15. just five. Yeah. It has a greater impact on our, on how long we live than our diet or how much we exercise. <laughs> so oh it really destroys us. Um, loneliness. It's, it's a chronic stress experience because when you're lonely, you think other people are rejecting you and you're looking out for all these signs that people are rejecting you and your body's basically undergoing chronic stress when we're lonely. Um, so it's really bad for us and, you know, friendship connection really helps. Like, just like we need water, just like we need food to function well, we absolutely need connection. What do these connections do for us physiologically that, that that bring down our, our, it sounds like raging cortisol and adrenaline if you're, (laughs) if you're lonely. Yeah. So when we are connected, we release a hormone called um, oxytocin. And oxytocin is considered a, a hormone that does double duty. It's also looked at as the fountain of youth in addition to like the hormone of connection. So it both keeps you young and it keeps you connected because not only when we feel connected, we release this hormone, but also that, you know, oxytocin actually makes us more friendly. People that have higher rates of oxytocin, they're more trusting of others, more generous towards others. So it's funny. It's just sort of like, oh, the hardest time to make friends is when you're lonely because of how it affects your brain and how you think about things. The easiest time to make friends is when you're connected because it makes you friendlier and warmer and more open towards others. So kind of like our brains like sabotaging us a little bit right like when we really need the connection the most our brain is like actually we're going to see everyone is very scary and weary right now and sources of threat okay but we can we can overcome this uh and i think this this is a, where the science of attachment comes in so can you 
I guess this is this is your work around the science of attachment. Yeah. So as I was writing my book, I found something in the research that basically our personalities are fundamentally a reflection of our experiences of connection or lack thereof, whether we are warm, friendly, trusting, cynical, aggressive, right? These are all predicted by how you've connected in the past. But not only that, those people that had those healthier connections, they develop an internal set of beliefs that fosters continued healthy connection, right? So it's like the rich get richer is kind of what we're saying here. Um, these, These people are what's called securely attached. They had healthy relationships, which makes them go into new relationships, assuming people like them, assuming people are on their side, assuming they can trust people, assuming they can be vulnerable to people, assuming people will be there when they need, right? All of these assumptions really help them create connection. Whereas those people that have had difficult connections in the past, they tend to be insecurely attached. They can either be anxious, which means they go into relationships very scared that people are going to abandon them, which makes them see see rejection when it's not there, get closed off and shut down or very angry at other people, which then makes them um, reject people, right? They don't even realize that when we get really afraid of rejection, we reject people or they can be avoidantly attached, which means because people have um, broken their trust in the past, they go into relationships with no effort. They kind of just withdraw. They're not really trying at all. They're very afraid of intimacy, right? And these set of beliefs that insecurely attached people will hold on to that people are going to betray me, betray my trust, or people are going to abandon me, they tend to become self-fulfilling prophecies. They tend to become confirmation biases where we all look out for signs that those things are true and ignore all the signs to the contrary. It's time for a break. Turn to communications. Their newsletter this week, their newsletter is On Message, hits the importance of gathering different perspectives as you are preparing your communications. They proposed a water bottle image for a national advertising campaign for their community foundation clients nationwide. And uh, that water bottle image didn't feel too good to the folks in Flint, Michigan and Jackson, Mississippi. Turn two hadn't thought of those possibilities, those opinions, until they did testing on their proposed images. Now, of course, they will develop something new. You can get their insightful newsletter on message at turn-to.co. Turn to communications. Your story is their mission. Now back to make friends. Marissa, do these have implications? It sounds like for for, uh, children who grow up in not necessarily single parent homes but because because single parent homes can be nurturing yeah. but but grow up uh, in homes where there's uh i don't know i don't know how to characterize but like early divorce a, a lot yeah. of abandonment I mean, yep. do, do do kids kids must carry this then to their uh with them through the rest of their lives uh, without some kind of intervention yeah so Absolutely. You know, going through a divorce is a predictor of insecure attachment. And we see that these anxiously attached people, the parents aren't mean, but they're just not prioritizing their kid. They're like prioritizing 
themselves more. And so the kid feels like I need to like fight to earn your love, right? Then that's the sense that they go into in all relationships. Like I'm not inherently worthy. And if I'm not trying to prove myself all the time, people Mm. are going to leave me. And then the avoidantly attached people, and again, there's a genetic component because some people may be like, my kid came out anxious. Um, But yeah, there's also a genetic component that sort of intersects with the environment here. But, um, and then people that are avoidantly attached, they kind of grew up with emotional neglect. Like their parents fed them, their parents gave them shelter, but did not respond to their emotions and told them, don't cry, handle that on your own, keep a lid on that, you know, push your emotions away, suppress your emotions, right? That's the message that they got. And that's why they feel like if I'm ever vulnerable, people are going to harm me or minimize me, or I can't like quite trust people with that level of vulnerability. And it's shocking. There is a study that basically found that our attachment as infants predicts how many inflammation related illnesses that we have, like diabetes, heart issues at age 32 and anxiously attached people, I think we're seven times more likely to have the inflammation related issues and avoidantly attached three times more likely than secure people. Holy cow. From infancy. Infancy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, (laughs) And, and, and the, the, the first set of folks that you, you, uh, you described, you know, if they're, they're constantly, uh, reaching out and trying to be friends. I mean, that's going to, that's going to put people off, isn't it? If you're, if you're trying so hard, doesn't that become apparent and, uh, a, a, a put off? Yeah, I would say it's not the trying, it's the pressure, <laughs> like anxiously yeah, attached the, people. The way you're trying. Yeah, exactly. You're, like if someone pulls away from them, they double down. They're like, you're trying to take your space. I need to get you to like me. Like they tend to try to create friendships with people that aren't interested in them. Because again, that's what they learned about love. Like you have to demand it. And you it's when it's freely earned, you can't quite trust it, right? So the so I think I describe anxiously attached people when it comes to friendship as high effort, low reward. They put a lot of effort into creating their friendships. They do initiate with other people. They try to maintain their friendships, but their fundamental problem is they are they feel so rejected and abandoned that they tend to see that when it's not there and they tend to reject people back you know try to get revenge on people they mm. tend to not be good at at letting people have their own lives and their own needs because it's like you need to do all these things to show me that i'm worthy so when you need space right when you need a little bit of distance when you're not able to hang out this one time right that's triggering my worthiness rune instead of me being able to see that you're a separate person with your own needs and you're not necessarily rejecting me so that is that's their big struggle when it comes to friendship mm, mm. Th- those are the uh, the anxiously attached those are the anxiously attached. The anxiously attached and uh, avoidantly connected um well there's no? the uh, yeah it's interesting anxiously attached avoidantly connected um what do you mean by avoidantly connected no oh, I, I thought that was with the i was just trying to Summar, summarize the the two phrases oh. that you, the two uh, monikers that you put on folks. Yes, uh, anxiously Anx- attached and avoidant. Maybe I got it avoidantly wrong. attached. Avoidantly attached. Ah, okay. yep. It's, it's yeah. much simpler. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. So let's try to. Uh, I, I'd like to apply the this your work, the, the science of attachment to uh, to to making friends in in new jobs. Mm-hmm. We we know about the great re- resignation, lots of people moving, 
as a, certainly impacting small and mid-sized nonprofits, our listeners. If we're in a new job, understanding it may very well be hybrid, what, what, uh, what applies? What, how can we help ourselves to build these platonic friendships, platonic relationships? Yeah. First of all, I just want to emphasize just how important it is to make friends at work. Um, when people rate how meaningful their job is, one of the biggest predictors, even more so than like salary, flexibility, um, all these objective measures of, of work is how connected they feel. Like that's like the biggest predictor of how meaningful people find their work. Mm-hmm. And there's like studies that look at data from like all these different countries and have people rate out of these 12 domains, which, which are the most important to you in the workplace. And resoundingly across all the countries, people say, having good relationships with other people. So it's critical. I mean, you know, lonely employees, they're more likely to miss work, their performance suffers, less engaged, less likely to be retained, right? Like for us to be happy at work, we need to feel connected, right? It's 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 not just, and I've been through this as myself as a professor at an institution who was like, I love the work that I'm doing, but I don't feel like I belong here and I feel really isolated and I left, right? Even though I love the work because that connection is just such an important resource. And, you know, there's research that finds that when we estimate how steep a hill is, when we're with a friend, we see it as less steep, which suggests when we face challenges and we're connected, like challenges at the workplace, they feel less challenging to us. Other research that finds that when you have a, a break to have a conversation with another person and you come back and you fulfill, you fill out like a test similar to like an IQ test, your score is actually higher because you took that time to converse with another person. These are, so these are remarkable outcomes, findings. Yeah, really exactly. Impactful. Yeah. yeah. So impactful. So, so what that means is like relationships don't get in the way of work. They're part of what's we need to facilitate it. And for us to be mm-hmm. performing at our best, we need to feel connected. Um, and so if you want to make friends at work, I think it's similar, similar tips that I share um, for outside of work, which is assume people like you, um, because according to research on something called the acceptance prophecy, when people, when people are told that you're going to go into a group and be liked, even though this is a lie, <laughs> they become friendlier, warmer, more open. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So assume that your coworkers want to hang out with you and want to get to know you and want to hear from you, right? Of course, if they if they say no or they're disinterested, then move along, but make that your starting assumption, right? And then you have to initiate. Because um, we, we underestimate that, right? We, we underestimate, yep. Underestimate people's uh, other people's esteem for us. We do. It's called the liking gap. When strangers interact and estimate how like they are by the other person, they underestimate how like they are. And not only that, the more self-critical people were, the greater this underestimation. Mm. So people like us more than we think. People right? like you. Uh, people that, like uh, you. George <laughs> Smalley, uh, you know, Al Franken on uh, Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Damn it. People, uh, I'm a good person and people like me or something like that. People like you. Yeah. 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 Um, And then you have to initiate. You have to say like, hey, do you want to get lunch sometime? Or hey, do you want to have coffee sometime? I would totally love to get to know you more, right? I don't know why we think these things come off as weird. (laughs) That's the hard step, taking that that, uh, affirmative step to say, let's move it to the next level. Exactly. It's not that big a level. It's just like chatting in the office versus having lunch. It's time for a break. 
fourth dimension technologies, IT infra in a box, the IT buffet. It's the holistic IT services solution where you choose the buffet items that fit your budget or your IT appetite, as it were, like help desk, security, assessment, planning and budgeting, moving to the cloud, and there's more. You take what you want from the buffet line, leave the rest behind. Fourth Dimension Technologies, Tony.ma slash 4D, just like 3D, but they go one dimension deeper. Let's return to make friends. Why do we feel that that's so, that's such the hard step to take? Yeah. After the, after the five minute conversation that, that went, you know, went smoothly and, and fun. Yeah, I think our fear of rejection is one of the biggest barriers to making friends, but our brains have a negativity bias, which means that when we predict how our behaviors come off, our predictions tend to be inaccurate and more cynical than the truth, right? Like I already told you about the liking gap, but that is a finding that is across the board. There's so many studies that find that people are perceiving us more positively than we tend to assume, right? And so if we can just remind ourselves of this, like people like you, they're less likely to reject you than you think, it gets a little bit easier to reach out to people and say, yeah, I'd love to connect sometime. Okay. And I don't know, am I, am I oversimplifying if I say that uh, people are overthinking, like, should I take the next step? Should I, mm -hmm. should I say, let's have lunch or should yeah. I say, let's get together after work? I mean, are we, are we doing that? Or am, yeah. I am I oversimplifying? If I am say, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. No, I think so. I mean, I think if you think it, do it right. If you think, should we have lunch? Just ask, let's have lunch. Right. It's, you know, you don't have to go back and forth with it. If you're rejected also like, that's okay. Like, for, there's a study that had people um, basically read stories about people transitioning to college where people kind of said, at first it was difficult making friends, but eventually I found my people, right? And then the, to share their own story of like, oh, I was rejected along the way, but eventually I found my people. So, and that that fosters greater belonging when we are able to see rejection as part of the trajectory to belonging, right? Like, if you want to belong, you put yourself out there, you're taking a risk. Some people will reject you. Some people won't. The rejection is not a sign to crawl back into your cave and crawl back into your tortoiseshell and never try again. It's a sign that you're doing everything right and that you're on the path. And this is a part of the path to, to connection is rejection, right? So I think that helps to remember that. And I, I like to tell people, like, if you've reached out to someone, you've succeeded because you can't control their outcome. And you can't judge yourself by an outcome you cannot control. So if you did successfully what was within your control, which is reaching out to someone, like you've already succeeded no matter what they say. Now we're getting into the realm of like value yourself. Mm -mm. You know, think, think well of yourself. People, uh, the, the, uh, keep in mind the liking gap, mm -hmm. you know, but it's not a reflection on you. It's they, they, it's a reflection on them, or maybe they really are busy for lunch already. Exactly. Yeah. Don't take it so personally. <laughs> I promise it's not as personal as you think. <laughs> and the more you take it personally, there's a, a theory called the hypervigilance for social threat hypothesis, which is really clunky, but it's just the, the, the meaning of it is that 
the more that we assume we're going to be rejected, the poorer our relationships will be. Because when we assume we are going to be rejected, we engage in antisocial behaviors, right? I'm not going to reach out to you. I'm not going to try to connect with you. I'm not going to be vulnerable with you. I'm not going to show affection towards you, right? Because I'm assuming that I'm going to be rejected. Thank you for defining that too, because uh, we have uh, drug in jail on nonprofit drug radio. Jail. I'd hate yeah. to I'd hate to have thrown you in drug in jail, but you uh, you defined <laughs> you defined it. Okay. Yes. Happy. Um, so, is there anything else about new employee, new workplace? Uh, that advice that you have? Hmm. Yeah. Or hybrid, maybe hybrid advice. If, uh, you know, I'm not going to get to see these people live for several weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I think setting up a regular time to meet is a really good idea because you're not going to just kind of bump into each other. Like, asking people, oh, are you open to just like a weekly catch up or a biweekly catch up? Right. And the other thing is when you do catch up, like stop talking about work. Like if you, <laughs> there's a study that found that the more time you spend with your colleagues, the less close you feel. And that is really weird. Right. Cause the, the more usually... time, the more time you spend with your work colleagues, the, the less connected you feel. Exactly. Yeah. How can that be? So my theory is that, you know, typically we spend time together at Foster's Connection, but at work, we spend time together and we're only showing this work side of ourselves. So it's like, you only know me as like an employee, you only know my ability to fill out this data sheet and that's all we're talking about. So I think it's really important if you want to make connections at work, like stop talking about work, tell them about who you are. I think some people think it's like risky, but like, there's so many things you can share about who you are that are not risky. Like, what are your hobbies, interests? Like, what is your community like outside of work? Where have you lived before? What are you learning? What media are you engaging in recently? All these things that you can ask people about uh, when you're first meeting them, you know, maybe maybe not in a work setting, but something social. I mean, people have people want to tell their stories. You know, where, where like you said, where have you lived? What have you done? Uh, uh, are you are you married? Do you have a partner? Do you have children? Yep. Where's your family? Do you you know all that all that stuff? Um, yes. Um, what about uh, new town? If you're in a if you've relocated recently, special advice for uh, for a new 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 place to live or yeah. someone who's maybe uh, I don't know how many listeners this applies to, but a nomad perhaps on the yeah. road a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think people move to a new town and they're like, I hope to make friends. And I want to tell you, do not assume it's going to happen organically. Just don't like friendship in adulthood. It doesn't happen organically. Um, people that think it does are actually lonelier five years later, according to one study, whereas people that see it as happening based on effort are less lonely five years later. So my suggestion for you is thinking about something that you're interested in and pursue it in community with other people, right? So I love learning different languages. I could take my Spanish class. You could do your hiking class, your improv class, your meditation class, your, you know, whatever it is that you like. Your class at the university, I think a lot of retired folks do, do things like that, right? Because when you, and then you're, you're setting yourself up to see someone in a, a way that's repeated over time. And that does two things for you. First of all, when you see someone in a repeated way over time, we have an unconscious tendency to like them more. It's called the mere exposure effect. So, um, mere. 
mirror, 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 mirror. Yeah. Mirror Mirror exposure exposure effect. Yep. And so when researchers planted women in a psychology lecture, they found that um, students liked the woman who showed up for the most classes, 20% more than the student, the woman that didn't show up for any, they didn't remember any of these women. (laughs) Um, But we also find something called like the anticipation of liking effect, which is the the effect that when we think we're going to see people again, we report liking them more than when we, we we're not sure we're going to see someone again. So if I just show up to this lecture and this happy hour, it's a one-off event, I'm not capitalizing on those powerful forces of connection versus when I'm joining something that's repeated over time, people tend to be more invested in each other. They come to like each other more. I think another implication of mere exposure effect, because when I was in college, I like joined a club to make friends. And in the first club, I didn't feel like anyone reached out to me and I didn't really connect with anyone. And then I quit. But the implications of mere exposure effect is like, you are going to feel uncomfortable at that first meeting. You're going to feel weary. You're going to feel like I don't trust anyone, right? That is part of the process. Mere exposure effect has not set in yet, right? It's going to take a little bit of time before you feel comfortable and they feel comfortable around you. Um, That's what you say. You're, you're doing the right things. You're doing the right things. It may feel, you may feel uncomfortable along the way, but that doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. But the other tip that I share, because this was my other issue, I show up at this club and I wait for people to talk to me, right? And I don't really try to introduce myself to anyone. And I'm engaging in something called covert avoidance, which is when you show up physically, but check out mentally, you're on your phone, you're in the corner, you're maybe talking to the host, the bartender, right? You're watching the television, right? But to overcome covert avoidance, it's not just about showing up. You have to engage with people when you get there, right? You have to say, hey, my name is Marissa. It's so good to meet you. Like, tell me more about your experience with this club, right? That's that's the sort of thing that really fosters the connection. It's time for Tony's Take Two. Planned Giving Accelerator. I'm just planting some seeds here. The next Accelerator class is going to be starting in March. And I really won't be promoting it until January, February. Well, in January and February, starting in January. I'll have some info then. So just like I said, planting seeds, if launching a planned giving fundraising program is something you want to do at your nonprofit, or if you're interested in it for professional development purposes, your own skill building, Plan Giving Accelerator. I'll be able to help you in uh, for either of those use cases. That's it. That's Tony's take two. Two. <laughs> We've got Buku, but loads more time for Make Friends with Marissa Franco. This has a lot of resonance for our uh, a lot of our listeners who are professional fundraisers. And so they're uh, they're, they're naturally drawn to folks uh, and relationships, hopefully. Otherwise, I think they're in the, the wrong profession if they're, not, <laughs> if they're not naturally, you know, inclined to like people. But but this is all that is valuable reminders. Uh, I, I'm, I'm As you're speaking, I'm thinking of myself in a, a, a charity event, you know, yeah. uh, a, a cocktail party or a dinner or something. Yeah. And, and there are the folks who are, right, talking to the host. Talking, talking to your fellow coworkers. Mm-hmm. Oh, but you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be talking to the the donors and potential donors to the organization, not yep. huddled with your coworkers for half the time. 
I wanted to just touch on that, Tony, because everything that I'm saying about making friends applies to networking. Like networking to me is making friends with people. Um, And when people go into a networking event, one study found that they spend so much more time interacting with people they already know when 95% of people that go went to this networking event reported wanting to meet new people. So literally everybody is there to meet you, but everybody is afraid. And we think if, if they're not engaging with me, they don't want to meet me, but no, they're not engaging with you because they're afraid just like you are. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I met this woman, she's really good at making friends and her secret was that she, Her mom had always told her, everybody wants to be your friend. They're just waiting for you to initiate. I love that. In one of your New York Times interviews, I I saw a comment that was a little disturbing, but I'm glad I saw it because I would not have thought of it. The guy said, this doesn't apply to men. Maybe fine for women, but this doesn't apply to men. Can you, and that was, first I thought it was unfortunate. Then I thought, some incel sitting in his mom's basement or something, you know, tuna helper, uh, uh, scrolling uh, 4chan. So can we help this, uh, can we help this person reassure us that it doesn't matter? You haven't said anything about gender. Gender. I brought it up. Can we, uh, can we reassure folks that it, it applies for everybody? We can, we can engage in the complexities of gender, which is that, this person is right. It is harder for men. Um, we know from the research that men are half as likely to be vulnerable with their friends, half as likely to share affection towards their friends. What men are up against is something called homohysteria, which is men's fear of being perceived as gay. So a lot of the behaviors that really? foster- that exists? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Homohysteria. Homohysteria, yep. Afraid of being perceived as gay. Yep. Yep. And it's like, it can be very deep rooted and very unconscious, but you know, why are some men so afraid to say, I love you to a friend, right? Or, you know, to even like have any sort of touch with a friend, a hug with a friend, right? And, and I think that's, you know, this homo hysteria makes men feel like I can't, um, I like, I, I can't reach out to a guy. I can't ask him to just hang out. We have to do it around an activity, right? And this homo hysteria makes it so that I think it's harder for men to find other men that are ready to be in deep relationships with them. That being said, I still think all my tips apply. I, I think they, they, I still think all the tips apply. Uh, what I do think is that men who are sp- specifically seeking friendships with other men, they might have to go through more of a sifting process, right? I, I told you rejection's part of the experience, right? Mm. Men just might have to meet a larger pool of men to find men that are ready for the deep intimacies of friendship who aren't as um, haunted by homosteria. And what about uh, cross-gender friends, uh, male and female? Is that Does that make it... Harder to, uh, I'm engaging in deep stereotypes here. Is it harder yeah. for men to, <laughs> to be friends with women? I mean, this comes from uh, when Harry met Sally. You know, yeah. what, what, how, what are the dynamics there? The dynamics are that men very much benefit from being friends with women. Like the research is mixed on whether men feel closer to their woman friends or their men friends. Whereas women 
in general report that the women in their life are the closest friends that they have. So, so men and also men that are friends with women actually experience more intimacy in their friendships than men that are just friends with men. So, so I think men feel safer around women in some ways to get really vulnerable in a way that they don't always um, feel around other men. So these cross-gender friendships really give something to men in particular. And obviously, you know, everybody gets the the sort of new perspective that they might be looking for from someone of a different gender, which both genders report appreciating about these cross-gender friendships. We also know, though, that these cross-gender friendships tend to be more fragile. They're more likely to end. And there can be, you know, people can feel threatened, right? If you get into a romantic relationship or you have a spouse and, oh, you're making friends with someone of a of a different gender and what does that mean for our relationship, right? And so I think some of those assumptions are part of the reason why it can be harder to make those friendships. That was, uh, <laughs> what you just mentioned was the cause of my, uh, my uh, uh, a divorce once. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I uh, My first wife, refused to allow me to um have lunch with female colleagues wow at work yeah. at work um and then um then she 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 thought i had had a lunch and it, it devolved from there but um th- th- that was a deep i mean i to me it was a, an insecurity that it yeah. was just you know lunches with colleagues were were uh were prohibited um, yeah can I speak to that, Tony? Because I think you're raising a really important point. Yeah, of course. Um, we sometimes really perceive friendship as antagonistic to romantic love, right? Like if you're hanging out with your friends, you're not hanging out with me. Like I only want you or I only want you to hang out with me. I want to be the only woman in your life, right? Yeah. But in fact, people that have friends are a lot better spouses <laughs> um, because like if I make a friend, according to the research, not only am I less depressed, my spouse becomes less depressed because like, oh, wow. You're, yeah. Your own happiness in a relationship is going to impact your spouses. So the, anything that makes you happy is going to make your relationship happier. Right. And, and there's other studies that find that when you get into conflict, your release of the stress hormone um, cortisol after the conflict is like dysregulated off. It's off. It's wacky. But when you have quality connection outside the marriage, that's not true. Your stress hormone release is still typical. And studies also find that for women that have particularly close friendship, tend to have more close friendships, when they go through difficulties in their marriage, they're more resilient to them because they're centering themselves emotionally and re-engaging in this relationship from a centered place because they have someone else that they could also talk to about the issue. So so I don't think, I wish that we didn't see these two things as antagonistic because in fact, they're synergistic. Like your spouse making friends is going to make for a better marriage, a better relationship with you. And a, and a happier you. And a happier you and a happier spouse, both yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you. Um, you. You encourage folks to share that with, with their friends how they feel that they that they like their friends that they're thinking about their friends why why is that so important yeah so i think sometimes we have this misconception that oh vulnerability burdens people right but in fact the research is sort of like clear that the more you disclose intimately about yourself the closer that people feel to you the more that they like you right? It's, and the more that they disclose back. So it becomes again, this sort of positive reinforcing cycle. And fundamentally, you know, 
having someone to confide and being vulnerable with someone is really important for our mental health and well-being. There is a study that looked at 106 factors that influence our depressive symptoms. Do you know what the number one preventer was? Uh, d- d- vulnerability? Yeah, it was and then having someone to confide in. That was the share, number one. Yeah, share, right, 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 right. The number one preventer of depression. Um, and so- Out of 106, out of 106 106, factors. 106, that's the most powerful one. Yeah, so we need it okay. for ourselves. We need it for our relationships. Like we need that vulnerability. Otherwise you're going to feel like, I'm friends with them, but they don't really know me and I don't actually feel that close to them. Listeners are going to know, uh, may, may even predict what I'm about to say about vulnerability and leadership. That I've I've for, I've always subscribed that vulnerability is a is a wonderful characteristic uh, feature of, of of leadership. That you can open up vulnerability about your not not necessarily about your personal life, but about uh, you know that that you don't have all the answers. Uh, That the organization isn't where we want it to be, but here's how we can get it there. Vulnerability. Can, are are you able to speak to vulnerability in leadership and how that's perceived by the the people who work for that person? Yeah, I haven't read extensively on this, but I know it does contribute to positive outcomes at work. And I also know that as a leader, what you do disproportionately sets the culture and the tone of the place, right? So if you're able to be vulnerable, you literally create an entire culture of people being vulnerable where now colleagues feel like, okay, this is a norm. Like leaders are creating the norms. And so the the people that are all working under you are all going to feel like, oh, now I can be more vulnerable with other people and I can share more. And obviously that's going to help them create those workplace connections with their colleagues that we just talked about as so meaningful. So it, that that can uh, absolutely trickle down from, yes. from, le- from leadership. Whatever you do as a leader trickles down. So <laughs> choose wisely. Um, I've been firing a lot of stuff at you, Marissa. What what would you like to talk about? Platonic hmm. relationships. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering what has you interested in this topic? Uh, okay, thank you. I'm, I'm the connector among friends. I'm... Uh, high school, going back to high school, I'm 60. Uh, I still have deep friends, friendships from high school, um, from college, uh, law school, the Air Force, uh, jobs I've been in. Like I leave a job, but I still stay in touch with the friends. I still, because I, I didn't like the job. It's not that I didn't like the people. So uh, I tend to be the ones, uh, my fraternity, I'm the one who organizes the, uh, the annual reunion around the, the spring carnival at the college. Um, I'm a connector, you know, I, I'm the one, even, even through, and I don't, have, I don't have children, I'm married but don't have children. So even through the ages where uh, my friends were uh, saddled, uh, had the responsibilities of children, let's put it, I'm trying to put it as politely as possible, I'm saddled or burdened with, <laughs> with, uh, with parenthood. No, well, I had the responsibilities of ch- childhood. So, you know, they couldn't get away on a, on a reunion weekend or, you know, but you, you wait out the, you know, you st- stay in touch and do what you can call instead of meeting, maybe uh, a quick meeting instead of dinner meetings, you know, things like that. And then through the decades, uh, you know, wait 16 or 17 years and then uh, the children don't want to be around because the parents are now a humiliation and an embarrassment. <laughs> you know, so if you wait out your friends, they'll come back to you. 
Yeah. Well, then all of a sudden they can come back to the reunions and they can meet you for a weekend and a dinner because their children don't want to be seen anywhere near them. Uh, <laughs> so if you wait it out, your 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 uh, your friends with children will come back. Um, so yeah, I don't. So yes, I saw you in the Times, and the idea of deep friendships, relationships going back to high school uh, resonates with me. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm the connector. So you're the one that will reach out and initiate and put in the effort. It sounds like. Yeah, I I, I keep the email lists for uh, a bunch of a bunch of different categories of friends. Oh, I forgot to mention Boy Scouts. Uh, my Boy Scout uh, camp. Uh, wow. Fellow coworkers and Boy Scouts. Uh, yeah, I, I I've got a bunch of email lists. I'm the one who uh, initiates. But it, you know, it's it to me. I'm doing it for selfish reasons mm. because it feels so good. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the it's the cortisol regulation you talked about. I don't know if dopamine is firing, mm-hmm. um, the oxytocin that you mentioned. I you know people thank me, but I'd say I do it for selfish reasons because it mm-hmm. feels good to get to see twenty friends together for a reunion weekend and laughing like they can't laugh in front of their families or their coworkers because you know we have bonds and we saw each other when we were stupid in college mm-hmm. uh, or in high school that that transcend. These bonds transcend all our other relationships. And yeah. so the, the persona is the personas are dropped, the facades are down, and everybody's just backslapping and laughing and enjoying each other's company that we've known each other for f- 45 years in some cases. And I also hear that because I know sometimes people are like the one to reach out and the one to organize and they can feel a little bit resentful, like people aren't reaching out to me, but it sounds like maybe part of the reason why that works for you is because you're able to be like, well, this is a joy for me. It isn't, you know, the task to be the one that reaches out all the time. Or or do you sometimes feel resentful if people aren't as um, intentional as you are? I used to, but I, I'm, I'm, that was that was probably 10 or 15 years ago or so. And I just got over it. Uh, a lot of it was because folks had children. Yeah. So, you know, so they weren't as available. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I got over it. I don't, you know, if, if people don't respond to the, well, it's not that nobody responds, but for the folks who don't respond to the, let's get together over the reunion weekend at college, you know, they have their own things going on. That's okay. You know, uh, yeah. let's, let's focus on the 25 who, who, who will come. Yeah. It seems like you uh, learned to not take things personally and that really helped you with your friendships. Yeah, enormously. Yeah. That's security. That's the secure attachment we've been talking about. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, I'm, and I'm yeah. talking to a psychologist. Right, I'm doing my therapy. Uh, <laughs> now I'm doing my therapy in public here. I want right. to have my podcast because I love asking questions. I love turning the tables and hearing from people. And we yeah, all have well, so much wisdom inside of us, you know. I appreciate it. I, and I, obviously I had a story to tell. Uh, why this all, this your work resonates with me because I believe in deep, rich friendships you know, the jokes that only we get, you know, mm-hmm. that only we know because it goes back 30 years or something, you know, That's <laughs> those amazing. types of things that those inside things, you know, that uh, it all, it all resonates. My synesthesia is kicking in because I'm, I'm getting goosebumps as I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you have a quiz. We, we should encourage folks to uh, take your quiz at uh, DR Marissa. And by the way, Marissa is one S DR Marissa G You want to acquaint folks with your, your, the quiz on, on your site? 
Yeah. So at, at drmarissagfranco.com, you can take a quiz. It assesses your strengths and weaknesses as a friend and also gives you some suggestions for how to improve as a friend, if that's what you're looking for. And you can reach out there. I do for any speaking engagements on connection and belonging. Oh, you say Dr. Marissa G. Franco. Yeah, that's the you're DR. People will spell out doctor. Okay. You know, um, you're you're right. I guess that is a no. A I'm, well, <laughs> I'm being little, it's the lawyer. It's the uh, the Air Force. I guess DR Marissa. Sense. However you want to do it, just doctor is DR. All right. Mm -hmm. DR Marissa. Doctor Marissa G. Franco. Um, but what else? Anything else from from the book or from from your research, science of attachment? Anything mm -hmm. else you want to you want to talk about? You graciously turned yeah. it to me. That was very thoughtful. <laughs> You were very generous and yeah. thoughtful that way. What, what, would well, you, what would you like to talk about that we didn't cover? Well, I think, you know, my niece read my book and one of her takeaways was that for friendship to happen, someone has to be brave. So be brave. Okay. Would you like to leave it there? I would like to leave it there. And of course, my book, you know, I appreciate if you yeah. read it. I think you really like it. It's called Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. It's a New York Times bestseller. Or you can find me on, for more tips outside of this, We you can find me on Instagram at dr. 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 Marissa G. Franco as well. And uh, hopefully we can connect more. But thank, Tony, thank you so much. This was really a pleasure. And I really did enjoy hearing some of your insights, especially because, you know, I'm a little younger than you. So I'm like, what does the future hold for me and friendship? So it's just, it's really helpful to hear your, your wisdom. Oh, thank you very much. I guess, uh, I guess I would summarize with, uh, wait out your friends, wait, wait out, out your, your friends, wait out your, your wait out your married, wait friends. out those kids, <laughs> wait out your married friends. They will come back to you. I love it. Uh, thank you. And, uh, and Marissa's book is at, uh, is, is, uh, is at drmarissagfranco.com. So that's where you can find her book, uh, mm -hmm. Platonic. Thank, Thank you. you, Marissa. Real joy. Uh, I got more goosebumps. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, Tony. Don't leave yet. I have to. Okay. Uh, I have to say goodbye to everybody. Uh, mm -hmm. It's time for. Um, sorry, it's time for me to tell you that next week, what ne what next week's show is going to be. Ordinarily, I would, but I'm working on it. I'm working on. It. I won't let you down again. I mean, not that I have. I, I'm saying again that I won't let you down. Not like I let you down in the past, and now I won't do it again. That's not what I meant. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you. Find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. And by Fourth Dimension Technologies, IT Infra in a Box, the affordable tech solution for nonprofits. Tony.ma slash 4D. Just like 3D, but they go one dimension deeper. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great. <laughs>